welcome to the Seeds Church Podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe to us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and on our Apple and Spotify podcasts. We hope you enjoy this inspiring message from our Sunday service. Well, yes, we're October 4. I hope you've seen some of those. And I hope uh, that this month has helped you to reflect theologically about things that we hear in our wider community. I mean, as you do that, as you do it with songs, as you do it with TV shows, as you do it with books, you're learning to engage with people in the wider community who don't know Jesus yet. So please keep doing that. Today's song is now quite famous, but it did not start that way. In in fact, it was kind of a flop when it first came out. And what changed it was being put into the soundtrack, soundtrack of Shrek. So you never know, you know, a cartoon sort of film like that can make or break you. And it was Shrek. Once the song was used in there, uh, it started to gather some fame. It's since been used on lots of uh, soundtracks, I mean, TV shows, concerts. And it's been recorded in 300 different versions. Now, I think you'd probably struggle to name too many songs that that's happened to. And maybe apart from classical music, where you can think that's happened a lot, but in terms of contemporary music, that's the most unusual thing. Written by Leonard Cohen. <clears throat> How are you going? Jeff Buckley did a version. But the one uh, that really struck me recently was sung at the Firefight Australia concert in February this year to raise money for a bushfire relief. It was sung by Katie Lang. And I, <clears throat> I think it was a great song because actually there's a lot of brokenness in this song. And so it fitted that occasion. Let's welcome Chelsea and Bailey to sing. Hallelujah. <clears throat> Played and it pleased the Lord, but you don't really care for music, do you? Well, it goes like this the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, and the major lift, the baffled king composing. Hallelujah! Strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof, her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you. She tied you to her kitchen chair, she broke your throne and she cut your hair, and from your lips she drew the hallelujah. 
Oh baby, I've been here before I've seen this room and I've walked this floor I used to live alone before I knew you And I've seen your flag on the marble arch Our love is not a victory march It's a cold and it's a broken Hallelujah God above, but all I've ever learned from love was how to shoot somebody who outdrew you. And it's not a cry that you hear at night, it's not someone who's seen the light, it's a cold and it's a broken to speak after that, isn't it? Extraordinary song, really. Thank you. So it's, it's, it's not my intention to dissect that too much. And I think, you know, whenever you do that with art, you kind of destroy it and take some of its mystery, don't you? But I will make a few points from it. To start with, let's talk about the word hallelujah, used 24 times in the Old Testament and four times in the New Testament. And it has slightly different meanings. So in Hebrew, from the Old Testament, two words, hallel, to praise joyously. And Yah is a shortened version of the unspoken name of God. The name of God was so holy that they would not speak it. And actually in Hebrew, it's an instruction, telling people the direction of their praises. It's like saying, you need to praise God. So that's an instruction. In Christian use, it's a word of praise, meaning Praise the Lord. And of course, it's used in secular terms, isn't it? You know, someone does something really good, they'll just say, hallelujah. So it's been adopted into secular culture as well. Cohen wrote the song over four to five years and came up with a huge number of verses. One account I read said he wrote 80 verses for this song and then narrowed it down, obviously, to the few that we've heard today. He was a Jewish man and therefore familiar with the Old Testament, and you would have seen some Old Testament allusions in that song. David of of course, is King David. He was anointed by Samuel the prophet to be king. 
and the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And then the spirit departed from the current king who was Saul. And an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. Now, I'm not going to go into that. That's a really complex and difficult statement. We'll just set that aside for today. Saul's servants then looked for someone skilled in playing the lyre so that they might play when Saul gets tormented and make him feel better. And one of Saul's servants knew that David played the lyre. And so David was summoned and in one of those classic Old Testament phrases, he found favour in Saul's sight. And then in 1 Samuel 16.23, I haven't actually put this on, on there, but 1 Samuel 16.23 we'll read, whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. And then relief would come to Saul and he would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. And maybe that's the secret chord that the song started with that went deep into his soul and brought relief. So it's actually David's musicianship that gets him into the court well before he comes in as a leader in another way. And the song talks of David seeing Bathsheba bathing on the roof and her beauty overthrowing him. To be frank, it's an abuse of power that leads to rape, to deceit, to murder and to deep brokenness. It's like the powerful King David began to believe his own propaganda and started to live for himself. So he becomes, in the words of the song, a baffled king. And then Leonard Cohen moves on to Samson and Delilah, another famous story from the Old Testament. Samson's a strong man. And the Philistines can't work out the source of that power. And so Delilah is given that task of trying to discover it. And Samson actually, he tells a lot of lies to start with him, all sorts of ways that, you know, that explain where his, his strength comes from, but none of them are true until finally he is wooed and he says, it's because I'm a Nazarite and my hair, my a razor has never touched my head. So then, of course, he's captured, he's tied up, his hair is cut and in the words of the song, his throne is broken. Both men are brought down to earth by lust. One loses his power and the other loses his strength. But, and, both repent and turn back to God. Neither can overcome their brokenness themselves and they can only manage a broken hallelujah. Well, other verses talk about the value and even the necessity of a song of praise, even in the face of confusion and brokenness, and, and I imagine some here would know about that when you're in difficult times and all you can, can manage is some sort of broken hallelujah. And Cohen himself says it's, it's a message of hope and persistence in the face of a cruel world. That's how he describes the song. And the song says that sometimes we cannot do much at all, but we can still stand before the Lord of song with nothing on our lips but hallelujah. And we can, can't we? Well, that's probably enough about the song, so let me move on to open that up a bit. And I want to use a New Testament reading from 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, so if you want to look at that, grab your Bibles or your devices, 2 Corinthians 4, and we'll look just at verses 5 to 12, and I will have it on the screen as well. 
For what we preach is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It's really an extraordinary passage and tells us a lot about the suffering of the Apostle Paul, and Mark Elford spoke about that in week one. But what Paul is actually doing here is responding to a stream of criticism that's coming out of the church, criticising him. A group of Christians is effectively saying, Paul, you're not much of an apostle. If you were a proper apostle, you would look very different. They're saying there'd be more victory in your life, there'd be more success in your life, there would be less suffering in your life. They're coming from the point of view of what we would call now a success theology or prosperity theology. You know that when you obey God, suddenly all of life goes swimmingly. Does it? That's a lie, isn't it? God never promised an easy, painless life, but did promise that we would never be alone. Now, Paul challenges this success theology in a way that we might at first expect. He says that, in fact, we are like clay vessels in which there is this extraordinary treasure. Now, when the theologian N.T. Wright talks about this passage, he told a story. He said, shortly after the Second World War, Sir Oliver Franks was appointed at the British, as the British ambassador in the United States. And you can imagine with all that turmoil after World War II, he was often in touch both with the President of the US and his own Prime Minister back in, in London. And he frequently needed to send urgent messages between the two. It was far too risky to use the telephone because it was probably tapped. So he'd use a sealed diplomatic bag and transfer the documents uh, by plane across the Atlantic. However, if there was something that was really confidential, utterly top secret, he didn't use a diplomatic bag, he used a plain, ordinary, brown envelope and sent it through the post because no one would guess the treasure it contained. And so what Paul is saying in today's reading is that we should not confuse the content of the envelope with the very ordinary, unremarkable envelope itself. The messenger is not important, but what matters vitally and urgently is the message itself. And the Corinthians were looking at the envelope. And they thought, this envelope's pretty tatty. 
Paul's public figure, his speaking style, the fact that he was constantly in and out of trouble, the fact that he was often very weak at times, that he was now near death. They looked at that and concluded there was nothing remarkable about him at all. In fact, historians writing about the Apostle Paul, so those who were either very uh, lived near him or heard things about him, said he was actually quite unattractive, really ordinary, with bow legs. He didn't look like a hero. He did not look like an apostle to the Corinthian church. It was like putting treasure in clay pots. They're fragile, they're breakable and they're disposable, but it's the treasure that matters. If it were otherwise, the clay pots might think that they were important. The envelope, envelope might think that it is the letter. Now, King David was a remarkable soldier, leader, politician and king, but he was also very broken. You might like to go into your Bibles and read every verse about him and you'll get the picture. He was a violent man who barely escaped with his life on many occasions and they were really violent times. He fell from grace on, on time after time after time. And I think I mentioned once before, if you, if you want a different version of this, read Geraldine Brooks's book, The Secret Chord. So she's a Jewish woman who obviously knows her scriptures and she takes every scripture in the Bible about King David and puts it into a story. Uh, it's at times graphic, but she it captures the violence of the time and the violence of King David. The thing about David was that he did keep coming back to God and that was one of his greatest strengths. He kept repenting. He brought his broken hallelujahs and, and, and really that's all he had to offer. And Psalm 51 is supposed to be the psalm that he wrote after raping Bathsheba and having her husband killed. And I, I won't read it all, but here's a few verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore in me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I mean, you can hear the desperation in there being trapped by his own brokenness and know, knowing that the only way out of it is the living God. It's a broken hallelujah. He's looking for a new start. Now, of course, we are broken human beings as well and it's not helpful to pretend that we have sorted out our lives and bringing a broken, honest hallelujah is a way for us to be open and transparent before our God. I mean, God sees us as we are anyway. So why put up a smokescreen? What David's story is saying to us is that nothing will stop our loving God from seeking to transform us into the likeness of Christ. He, Paul describes his life as afflicted in every way of being perplexed and persecuted and struck down. He's always carrying in him, in his body, the death of Jesus. And as Paul says in Colossians 1.24, his own sufferings 
somehow in the strange economy of God are taken up as part of the sufferings of Jesus himself for the sake of the church. It's not that Jesus' sufferings were incomplete, of course they weren't. But somehow our own sufferings, when they're done with Christ, become this gift for humanity and the church. So Paul is saying that the Corinthians should not misinterpret their lesser suffering as a sign that they're superior or better. He says, rather, it's a case of death working in me that life might work in you. Paul is saying that suffering for Jesus allows others to see that Jesus is the most important thing in his life. He's willing to suffer for the gospel because nothing else matters as much to him. It's a strong testimony. And he writes to the younger Timothy saying, so do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Well, we may not be persecuted in the same way as Paul. Let's hope it never happens. But it makes a difference how we do suffer, that glory might come to Christ. You know, in your temptation, your suffering, your bereavement, your tragedy and sorrow, you may still feel like you're being crushed or perplexed or whatever, but you can still live out the gospel. I read this story recently by a woman, uh, Molly Basket, and she wrote about this guy called Marley Watkins. And if you put Marley Watkins into your internet search engine, you'll find plenty of coverage of this. So Marley uh, Watkins is a guy who loves to dance, and so each day he dances in the street. And one of the reasons he dances in the street is he's trying to bring peace to his neighbourhood. He's not mentally ill, though he has struggled with that, as, as many people do from one time or another. He's a dark-skinned black man with a diagnosis of autism, very high-functioning, in fact, more more highly-functioning than many. And in May, two days before George Floyd was killed in the US, someone saw him dancing and rang the police. We don't exactly know the motivation, but but one of the suggestions is they were just worried he'd get hit by a car because he's in the middle of the road. Anyway, four police cars show up, they cuff him, throw him to the ground, kneel on him and break a tooth in the process and neighbours from the sideline are calling out for, him to, for the police to stop but they say we can only evaluate his mental health once he's under control. Now, the result was that there was this huge, or many actually, huge multiracial dance parties as, as a form of protest for what was happening And Molly said, I met this guy, Marley, at one of the dance parties, and we ended up talking for some time. She said, I knew I was in the presence of someone anointed by God. His deep, liquid eyes poured love over me. I told him how gravely sorry I was that he had suffered. And he said, no, 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 it it all happened just like it was supposed to. A big statement, isn't it? It needed to happen for everything else to happen. And, And she said, Molly wrote, I believe it's really dangerous to say that God brings good out of all of our sufferings. And and sometimes people might even say that to you when you suffer. It's kind of a way of belittling what's actually happening in your life. And she says some of us have spent years unbelieving in a God who demands suffering, particularly the suffering of already vulnerable people. 
You see, what Marty did for her was to remind her that we each get to decide if our personal suffering has a holy purpose. Now, you can probably think, think of some stories in the Bible where that's so. And the one, of course, that immediately comes to mind is Joseph, who suffered terribly. And, and actually, he wasn't a very nice sort of guy to start with, but suffered terribly. But in the end, he saw that God gathered all of that up changed who he was and brought reconciliation with his family and actually ended up saving the nation of Egypt and Israel. So his suffering was for a good purpose. And then Marley went on to say that, uh, to tell Molly about a, another thing that had happened. He said, for months before his arrest, this guy had driven past and shouted racial abuse at him. He was a city employee, so he was in his role, in his uniform, still yelled that out. But after Marley's arrest went viral, you know, the videos and the news, this guy came and begged forgiveness. And they were reconciled. Like Joseph and his family. So this extraordinary thing came out of his suffering. And you know, likewise, when Paul wrote in the Philippians, he brought greetings from the members of Caesar's household. What's happened there? In prison, he shared the gospel with the members of Caesar's household and they've become Christian. Caesar would have been appalled. The idea of picturing humans as vessel of, vessels of clay was a really common metaphor at that time, a common metaphor for the weakness of human beings. And so what Paul is doing is he's contrasting the difference between, his, in a sense, his own lack of worth and the surpassing value that God is offering. So four contrasts, afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. His persistence can only be attributed to the living God. Nothing else can explain what he did in the presence of such terrible suffering. So Paul's suffering is a platform for the display of God's power. Now when we suffer, we can take some courage from the fact that our lives will mediate to others the power of the resurrection whether through God's deliverance, so if it's a sickness, we can be healed, or whether it's broken relationships, they can be restored. So sometimes there's deliverance, but other times there's endurance and holiness. And people can look at that and see the presence of the resurrected Lord. And so that in itself witnesses that God is alive. And we, like Paul, are called to trust God, to sustain us in the midst of adversity, in the confidence that he ultimately will deliver us, that God's power will be manifest in our weakness. I mean, those of you who knew Val Harrison, whose funeral was recent, um, you know, three children died. A fourth child is, is being treated for cancer, a husband with Alzheimer's. Did you encounter in her bitterness or regret? Or No, you didn't. You encountered grace. And that testified to the risen Christ. 
One of the books written about Hallelujah is called The Holy or the Broken. In fact, we're both, aren't we? We are set aside from, for God, which is what holy means. Yet we are broken and the work of transformation continues until we meet Jesus face to face. We do offer broken hallelujahs. But this side of heaven, that's the best we have to offer. And it brings delight to the heart of God. Let me pray with you. What an amazing God you are. You've come into this world. You've come into our lives and you keep coming. You keep calling us back and you rejoice in our broken hallelujahs. Thank you for your grace and mercy. And we pray, God, keep transforming us into the likeness of Christ to your praise and to your glory. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to the Seeds Church podcast. We hope you join in with us next week. For more information, you can visit our website at seedschurch.org.